episode of Man of Science, Man of Faith is now streaming. Episode 201, Merle Haggard and Bill Withers, two sides of the same coin. We are comparing the two and their similarities and their differences. This Saturday, October 23rd, I am playing at 114 Rose Street with Violent Moons. Tickets are $5 presale, $8 at the door, $7 if you come in costume. Music City Movement is putting on a show live at Cabana Taps on Wednesday, October 27th, featuring the Slow Drag, Damon Mitchell, David Young, and the Interstate Kings, and Garden of Eden. It is free admission. Come in costume. The theme is Dress Your Favorite Musical Decade. And with that, today we have the Gristle King himself, Greg Cock. Greg, how's it going? Not bad. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I just uh, got back from Florida. I was visiting my sister down in South Florida. Okay. Yeah, it was it was a pretty nice trip. It was good to see her. I hadn't been down to Florida in probably three or four years, and it's the first vacation I've taken in a really long time. I don't usually take vacations. Nice. I was just in Florida my own self. I was in the Tampa area. I was in St. Pete last week as well from when I think I got in on Tuesday and I went home on Saturday. So we were both flo- Floridizing. Yes. Were you uh, playing a gig down there? Or were you on vacation? Uh, actually, I was doing some videos for the uh, the True Fire people. I got a bunch of new instructional, instructional. Did I say instructional? Yes. <laughs> That's a new word. Some new instructional, instructional guitar savagery that is being, being, being made manifest. So it's a master class? Well, the first one that's coming out is, yeah, that one was done. I was back there in July. And so that one comes out October 27th, but uh, uh, pre-sales going on now. But uh, we did three more right away. We're trying, because it's for years I've been, I've known the True Fire people, but I had other kind of, I'm going to say contractual considerations uh, that I had to kind of be careful of. And I got freed up this past year. So I called him up and said, Hey, we've always wanted to do this. Let's do it. So uh, I went down there, did three more classes while I was down there last week. So it was quite a brain hemorrhage in terms of, uh, you know, coming up with stuff and performing it in an acceptable manner and all that kind of stuff. But it's good stuff because once you got it down, it's there forever. So that's all good. Why should people sign up for the masterclass? Well, if they like what I do, uh, although I will say that, um, you know, there's stuff for every skill level in that. It's not just like guitar, hardcore folks. I think if you're a guitar player that's been playing for, you know, a little length of time, you're going to find something in there that is uh, useful. And at very least, it's going to be entertaining. There's like 50 lessons in there. Usually... What happens with these things is you go down there and they like pick 10 of your things that you do, you know, 10 of your stylistic things, right? So, and they give you two days to do it. Well, I've been shooting these types of videos for 20 plus years, right? So we get down there and after like the first day we were done pretty much. So they're like, well, let's just keep going. So I'm like, well, we could do this and we could do that. And so it's, it's a combination of there's some performance stuff. Uh, which is cool. And I dissect what I performed, but I think the coolest part of the lessons is, is that uh, I do kind of a brief, uh, well, I do an introduction to the technique. So I might say, oh, this is chicken picking or, well, I first learned chicken picking from this person and I learned these types of things. So I play all these little off the cuff examples of all the things that led me to where I was going with the main lesson, but all that stuff is transcribed to boot. So in addition to having these marquee things that are 
part of the uh, the lesson plan, there's all my random musings, which are all transcribed as well. So it is a veritable buffet of gristle for you to consume and slather your intellectual musical being with. Wow, that was that was an interesting statement. Well, you're the right man for the job. The way that I got to know you was over a decade ago. I was uh, T2, Sweet T, as I was so lovingly called there, at Wildwood Guitars. Yes. And you were shooting videos for them for their for their website. And uh, you're a super versatile player. It's like you can do a little bit of everything. Well, you know, I... Uh... To me, I, 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 the, the dots are all connected, you know what I mean? In terms of, uh, you know, I got into the country thing through because this Albert Lee guy was playing with Clapton uh, and I was really into, you know, Clapton. And then I got into all the blues guys that influenced Clapton and the, the guys that influenced those guys. So there's this intersection of all these different people. So with Albert Lee, I went into the old, more of the country uh, dudes from everyone from Jimmy Bryant to, uh, you know, Roy Nichols to James Burton, you know, of course, Chet Atkins and, and, um, and Jerry Reed and fellas like that. But then, you know, then I got into jazz guys as well. And I connected all the dots there. And then there were, of course, a bunch of different rock people that I was really into. And then slide stuff, funk, all, all that kind of stuff. It all, it all spoke to me, as it were. And, uh, but also, you know, I, I always mention the fact that, you know, my dad was a lawyer. I was the youngest of seven kids. There were no musicians in the family. So the, the, the thought of the youngest, you know, being a musician uh, terrified them. <laughs> uh, so there was a fair deal of, well, you know, if you're going to do this thing, you know, you better really be up to snuff or else you're going to starve to death. So, you know, I was driven. I mean, I was driven by the love of the music primarily uh, but also the, the ambition to succeed was, uh, was prevalent as well in terms of knowing that I need to, uh, uh, needed to apply a certain amount of a, you know, pretty hefty work ethic if I was going to uh, remain solvent, as the case may be. Yes, absolutely. So it, growing up, uh, were, were your parents like super into the fact that you were doing music or were they a little bit scared? And they, did your dad want you to kind of follow in his footsteps? Well, it wasn't so much that he wanted me to follow in his footsteps per se, although I definitely thought I was going to when I was when I was really I was like, I'm gonna be a lawyer like the old man. This is cool, you know, and. Um, but when I started playing and, you know, my grades weren't doing very well, like from middle school on, like from eighth grade on, uh, I was so obsessed with the guitar um that and, and i probably had some kind of adhd thing they didn't really talk about it back then you know what i mean it's like yeah. this kid this kid can't pay attention and won't do his homework it's like well maybe not won't but probably can't concentrate to do any of this stuff so uh but i did well on the subjects i really liked you know history and you know when i had to write a paper i knew what i was doing and all that other kind of stuff uh anyway but my, my parents enjoyed the fact that I was passionate about something and was obviously working a lot at it, but to the, to the point that it was taking away from my studies, uh, that terrified them. So my dad all along the way, as much as he paid for lessons and, you know, was always trying to help me out on the musical journey, he would also take time to talk to all of these different instructors and be like, will you please talk some sense into this kid? Tell him how hard it is, you know, how hard it is to be a musician and, 
you know, all this other kind of stuff. So they would all have the talk with me, you know, they'd always say, hey, look, you know, being a musician is really hard, you know, and it's uncertain and da, da, da. And they'd always end up with, but having said all that, I wouldn't do anything differently is what they all said. You know, um, everyone, even my college professor, when I went to school for music and my dad had talked to him too. I was like, will you please talk some sense into him? And, uh, and I remember he had the same talk with me of like, look, you know, it's, a, you know, it's a long journey and, you know, there, there are no, um certainty about anything aspect of making a living with this stuff and so on and so forth and but again they would all end you know especially this guy was like look i wouldn't do anything differently so i, I mean i i think that in order to be a musician um to to have the absolute um hard-headedness to go forward knowing the likelihood of success, just in terms of being able to make a living, let alone any kind of meteoric situation. I mean, you, you got to be a little crazy, you know, what I mean? <laughs> there's yeah. no doubt about it. There, there is a certain amount of uh, uh, obsession uh, that, you know, under any other circumstances would probably be unhealthy. <laughs> but it, it's what it takes, because you, you know, like my daughters, you know, they were, getting into theater and one still is, you know, she's really into it and she's got all kinds of different things that she wants to do with it. Um, but I said, look, if you've got to be prepared for the fact that, um, you know, the love of what you do has to so far exceed the negativity that you're going to experience at like every turn uh, in terms of trying to get your art across and be compensated for it. If the love of what you do isn't so is so great that you're, you know, that's going to supersede all of that stuff, then don't even bother doing it. And, and that speaks to a lot of people because, you know, if you get the first bad review or if someone turns their nose up at you, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times that's happened over the years. And I'm like, what the hell's their problem? You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll show them was always my motto. And then it got to the point where I showed them and I was like, they probably wouldn't get it one way or the other. It doesn't even matter. You know what I mean? 100%. And you just keep on keeping on. I listened to this uh, great interview with Bill Withers recently where he was talking about uh, he was giving advice to his kids and they were going on their paths in life and, and all that. And basically what he said is uh, on your way to wonderful, take a look around at all right, because that might be where you end up. And I thought that was really poetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, he was saying, like, it's okay to have dreams and it's okay to really go for it, but you have to make amends with the fact that where you are is where you are. Well, there's, absolutely. There's no shortcuts. There's no way through it. There's no way around it. And you might just be in that state of all right. And I'll tell you, all right ain't all that bad. That's right. As I like to say, you know, no matter where you go, there you are is another one. But I think, you know, the whole thing with... um you know, like with, for instance, with COVID. So I was, you know, I had a bunch of things booked, but you know, I do a lot of video stuff. Obviously I still do all the stuff with Wildwood. I do a bunch of stuff with, uh, with Fishman and they were already kind of pivoting to having me do more online stuff anyway, had some other signature products coming out. And then of course there's the band stuff. I had a new record coming out. We were doing live streams with the band and, you know, especially during the first part of COVID, you know, people are very, very generous with the tips. So, um, you know, I did, I did well. I mean, um, you know, I felt bad for all the people that weren't doing well. And I felt, uh, especially for some of the musicians who, you know, their primary source of income was just playing. 
Um, I felt really bad for them. But by the same token, what I realized about myself was is that I just like playing. So if I'm in my house or if I'm on a stage and people are like, yeah, but the, the, the thrill of live performance, absolutely. There's, there's nothing like when you're in front of people and, you know, there's that, you know, congregational exchange that happens between audience and band and band members with each other and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but there's the getting there and all the other superb ancillary stuff that goes around the performance that is such a downbringer. And, and, and of course, not to mention the dicey aspect of the, the finances about, uh, you know, touring and so on and so forth. So when I was in a situation where I was like, I could stay at my own house and play whatever I want and people tune in and they seem to be digging it. And I'm helping people get through um, their, you know, situation and, and people were taking solace and buying musical instruments and, and doing lessons and tuning in. And, you know, it was one of those things where it made you reassess what was really important. And, um, you know, being home with the family was outstanding. I mean, I'm usually gone 125, 150 days out of the year. And all of a sudden there was a good, you know, we're coming up on two years here and I've been gone maybe a week total. You know what I mean? Uh, or maybe two weeks total uh, in this, those two years. I mean, you reassess a lot of things of what's important and you, you get to the point where it's like, you know, I don't want to do the stuff that I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> well, from what I hear, what you're saying, uh, it's really important to diversify as a musician and not just put all your eggs into one basket. Was right. That, was that something that you've always just been interested in a bunch of things? So you were always kind of doing a bunch of different stuff or how, how did that come about? Well, I think it came from. Uh, I learned early on that you say yes, even if you're on the fence of whether you can actually do something or not. You know what I mean? Uh, because, uh, you know, music wise, obviously. Uh, but, it, you know, one of the things that happened to me is I had my own band, uh, put up my own records. It, you know, at one point, I thought the coolest thing in the world was working at the coolest guitar shop in town during the day where I was full time. And uh, of course, I was nights off and I was playing three, four nights a week and everyone knew our band was and we did well in the local music awards. And, you know, we played all the big festivals and we'd party with all of our friends and everybody we knew would come. You know, that was all great when you're 20 some years old. Right. Yes. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're getting married, you got a kid coming and all of a sudden what's grown up money when you're in your 20s and what's grown up activity, you know, in terms of you know, staying out all night long and all that other kind of stuff, uh, you have to adjust. So I missed her mom for, for a long time. You know, when my kids were young, my two, my two uh, oldest, I was home with them quite a bit. But when we were having our third, uh, third Bambino, my wife was like, look, you know, cause she was, she was making a boatload of dough working at a, you know, she's a very good graphic designer at a you know top ad agency doing all this stuff. And uh, she's like, you know, I just really want to stay home with the kids, even if it's for a year, uh, I would just like to have that experience. And I said, yeah, but if I if I'm going to make anywhere near the money you're making, plus the money I'm making, uh, I'll probably have to go on the road. And we're like, well, she's like, I don't you know, I'm okay with that. If you're okay with that. I and mean, we, we worked it out. And um, it, but it was, I'd say what leading up to the point where that happened, it was extraordinarily stressful, but things came to me uh, that I said yes to that I would have never thought up in a million years, you know, uh, Hal Leonard reached out to me and said, Hey, 
you want to do some books with us? We're thinking about, you know, redoing our, our, our guitar method and, you know, or the original author, we'd like to get you with him and kind of revitalize it a little bit. And then you would be the guy to champion it for us. I said, yes. So I ended up doing that. That became the number one selling guitar method in the world. And, um, did about 17 pro, you know, DVDs and, and books and books with audio and video for them. Um, so that was one aspect of things. I did the stuff for Fender guitars that took off. Um, when I was at the NAMM show, Steve Vise, people saw me play and I ended up getting a record deal with him, uh, ended up getting another record deal with this label in Europe, uh, got a booking agent in Europe who I've been using ever since. Uh, so everything lined up. But most of the stuff was not stuff I really kind of foisted. You know what I mean? It just kind of, I made myself available for it. Opportunities came and I just made the best of the opportunities. It's like when I used to get called for sessions, you know, I remember they, they called me up one time and they said, uh, uh, can you play flamenco guitar? I said, for how long? <laughs> they said, it's a 30 second spot. I said, yes, I can. And I remember I didn't even have a nylon string guitar. I, I borrowed one. Actually, I think I bought one, a, a relatively inexpensive one. And I went to the library and I pick up a Paco de Lucia record. And I listened to that on the way to the session. And then I got there and they played the demo and they just wanted a little bit of flavor. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. You know, it, it could have been a disaster. I, mean, I could have gone in there and they could have said, well, we need you to do this and this and this. But, you know, I, you know, I just... You, you have to be kind of fearless in that regard and, you know, and just let the chips fall where they may. But there was a lot of stuff like the Wildwood thing. I mean, that was totally something I never would have thought of in a million years. You know, uh, um, Steve contacted the Fender rep. The Fender rep called me up and said, hey, remember that store Wildwood Guitars out in Colorado? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, he's got this idea to do these guitar videos. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, well, so, you know, Fender will, Fender will pay all your expenses and Steve will pay you directly. And you know, I'm like, okay. So I went out there thinking it was like a once every, you know, God knows how long thing. And um, I went out there and I remember the first video I did, Steve gave me kind of a general overview of what he wanted. He's like, look, you know, here's Telecaster. We got a bunch of fenders today. Um, just, you know, on the screen, it was, you know, the name of the guitar, the weight and like the color. Right. And, um, and he's like, just play the guitar and, you know, play each pickup position clean and with a little overdrive and play some different styles and whatnot, and maybe give some impressions of what you think of the guitar. I'm like, all right. So the camera goes on, I do my thing. I get done with one video. He stands up and he comes over. He goes, can I hire you to do this? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I'll fly you out here every month to do these videos. I go, you mean kind of like a job? <laughs> and, uh, I said, yeah. And that was, that was 10 years ago. Right. So, or probably more at this point. And it continues to go great. I love doing them. I mean, I never, I never wake up in the morning and go, Oh God, I got to do this today. It's like, I enjoy everything I get to do, whether it's playing guitar, talking with you, uh, you know, doing a band thing versus doing a guitar demo versus, you know, whatever. I, I enjoy all the stuff I get to do. Cause you know, it's, it's just, I've just lucked out that people are okay with me being me. You know what I mean? They let me say what I want to say and play what I want to play because they trust me. And that, and that means the most everyone wins. I mean, everyone's bread is being buttered as it were, but it's just, it's just so nice that uh, I can kind of be myself and get paid for it. That's the dream, <laughs> isn't it? Yes.
<laughs> How has your mindset kind of evolved over the years in terms of playing guitar? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I, I learned different things um, still. You know, I'm a lot of times it's just exploration uh, in terms of, oh, well, this is kind of cool. Sometimes it might be as simple as, uh, oh, you know, I always wanted to learn that one tune. Maybe I, maybe I should just try to learn it. And then, you know, go online and listen to the tune and, uh, and try to figure it out a little bit. Or sometimes I'm on Instagram and, you know, someone will do like one little thing, like one little chordal thing and be like, well, that's cool. I never thought of doing it that way. What I think I'll take it and do it like this. So it's kind of a combination of always, um, being on the lookout to things to add to the refinement of my own style is basically it. I'm not real interested in sounding like somebody else, but I do like to speak in the language of somebody else every now and again, if it's something that intrigues me. You know what I mean by that? I'm not really interested in playing something verbatim, but I like, but I like to get in the, the mindset and, and kind of speak in the lingo. So, uh, you know, they sent me one of these Eddie Van Halen guitars. I, I, I never sat down and listened and figured out Van Halen stuff back in the day. Everyone else was doing it. So it was the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. And, uh, but they sent me that guitar and, you know, I had the first three Van Halen records. You know, I remember, I, I didn't really listen to the third one. I remember I, someone dropped it and it broke and that was that, but I had the first record on vinyl. I made a tape. I got a Maxell, you know, tape of the second uh, Van Halen record. Um, but I never sat down and figured any of that stuff out. So today I was just like, ah, I should probably learn a couple of those tunes. And I just sat down and learned some of the rhythm parts and some of the lead stuff. I, I don't do the tapping thing, although it was kind of funny. I was just kind of messing with it and like, ah, I suppose I could learn a few more of those things. You know, it's just one of those things where you, you never get bored with guitar. Um, but I always do things that kind of speak to my, even though there's different styles and stuff going on, it, there, I, tr there's a connection with all the stuff and, uh, and, and like the, the old school metal stuff is, I mean, I shouldn't say old school, although it is kind of now, but I mean, all the eighties metal stuff was not really my forte. Um, because I was more into the, I was more of a, you know, of a boomer mindset because of my, my siblings. So it was, to me, it was Hendrix and Zeppelin and the Stones and, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff, as opposed to, uh, you know, um, Oz, you know, Ozzy's groups with Randy Rhodes and, you know, and then Dio and, and, and then all the, the, the spandex bands. I mean, I didn't listen to any of that stuff. And, um, and because I thought it was, you know, well-covered ground. I mean, everyone was doing it and, uh, uh, that didn't appeal to me. I was more of a kind of a, a roots oriented, um, uh, somebody that was trying to push things along those lines, uh, but not necessarily kind of a metal thing. But that being said, I did have fun today playing along with some Van <laughs> Well, there's a, another quote that I really like by David Bowie, where he said, when everybody else is going right, go left. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah. I've, I've, I've often taken that that uh that mindset i mean i think that's one of the reasons why i play all the different styles i mean i'll 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 like immerse myself into a certain style and be really into it and then you know if there's too many people kind of poking around in that situation i just get sick of it and i go elsewhere so um that's kind of been the way it's always been for me you know i, I go in little cyclical things but i always try to maintain those repertoires of of uh ideas and techniques and whatnot as well but 
I always like talking to experienced musicians because you grew up without the internet. Right. It wasn't an option for you to go look at YouTube. And it wasn't until you were a player that was already developed that YouTube existed. Right. Um, so that being said, are you on TikTok at all? You know, I, I started a TikTok thing and I put one video on. My son does it quite a bit. He puts a lot of drum videos on and he's offered to handle my TikTok thing for me. Uh, but I haven't really done it yet. I might just for the fun. I might do more of my humorous stuff on there. You know yes. what I mean? You 100% should. I think TikTok is really the way of the future as far as social media is concerned because it's the most democratized algorithm. Mm -hmm. Like it's easy to get to the top. You can be some random person in a podunk town in Ohio. And if you can play and people see it, then they'll watch your videos and they'll subscribe to you. Aha. But that being said, uh, yeah. Um, what I kind of wanted to talk to you about was just uh, the fact that you did grow up without YouTube versus now where it's completely just everything social media. What was it like before that? I'm so curious. Well, it's funny you should say that because I, I say now that it's like the golden era of learning, but people don't realize that, right? They think, well, it's just, it's just now. But I mean, the fact that you have access to, well, I'll give you an example. So back in the day, um, I think, and I was talking about this yesterday with another gentleman, a guitar player, and uh, we were talking about the fact that sometimes I wouldn't listen to more than three records, you know what I mean, for six months. You know what I mean? You just buried yourself because that's all the records you had, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had other records, but I, you know, I'd listen to them. I got like three new records and those are the records I scoured and, and I didn't even slow them down. I would just put the needle on and listen to it and go, you know, and go back. And, and, and I think one of the biggest things, whether that was mentioning earlier is that I was never interested in doing it exactly the way the person did it. I was more interested in cherry picking the cool stuff that I, that I wanted to add to my grab bag and speak more in the language of, but I used to love to play along with records. I had a little amp in my room. I turned their stereo up and I would play along with, you know, BB King live at the Regal or the Allman brothers, you know, live at the Fillmore or the stones love you live or, or get your yayas. I mean, that's what I used to, I used to love it. Just playing along with records. I still love playing along with records. Um, but it was interesting because you you discover someone new. Like when I discovered Albert Lee because he played on this Clapton record, 19, 1980, the record came out. And um, we all just wanted Clapton to play some decent guitar again because it had been almost a decade since his glory years of playing the stuff that everyone knew him for as a guitar player. And he came out with his record and it was like, finally he was playing a little bit more guitar, but he had this other guy playing, this Albert Lee guy. So what you do back then is you discover someone new. Well, who's this guy? And there would be, you know, you had like one guitar magazine, maybe two, uh, but there was, you know, Guitar Player Magazine was like the Bible, right? So you'd open up Guitar, oh, there's this Albert Lee guy in there. I could find out what who he's into, right? So he'd be like, he would mention these names and it would be like, you know, as I said before, Jimmy Bryant or Roy Nichols or, um, uh, you know, Ch uh, Chet Atkins, or he would talk about, you know, uh, you name it, all these different, Hank Snow, whatever, all these different names that I had no idea who these guys were. Um, but I really didn't have the dough to go into a, I mean, I'd go into the used record store and try to find some of the stuff, but unless you were really motivated to like get the old catalogs 
and like order a way to get these records. And I wasn't that. I was just like, give me a record to work on now. You know what I mean? I was more interested in having that that instant kind of gratification and, and accessibility to stuff. Um, whereas now, I mean, any guy that's mentioned or person, you know, whatever that's mentioned in uh, in any interview that you see, you can immediately go online and go on YouTube. And if you're going to find at least uploaded audio, if not actual video footage of the person playing, uh, and then possibly some lesson content from that same individual. Yep. So it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, back then, I mean, you got to remember even this is before MTV. I mean, and when MTV out came out, it was just so wild to see people actually playing the stuff because before then it's like, you had to go out to gigs to see people play this stuff. I mean, you'd see like, there'd be like a, Oh, roots of rock and roll show is going to be on Tuesday night. And they'd show like 30 seconds of Hendrix playing. You're like, Oh my God, what is that? And he's like playing behind his back. You're like, hot, what? You know, it was insane. And there would be uh, like on a Friday or Saturday night on the cool, you know, hip part of town, you know, at, at midnight, you could go to this, you know, weird theater where you could pay a, a five bucks and get in and see Led Zeppelin's song remains the same or Jimmy plays Berkeley or yes songs or Russ never sleeps all these old rock and roll movies. Uh, but if you didn't do that, you were SOL until MTV came along. And then on Sunday nights, they started to show the rock and roll movies that you used to have to stay up late and try to let your parents let you go to these, you know, midnight showings of these old rock and roll movies. And, uh, so that really opened it up. You're like, oh my God, we can actually see these people play. And they started to, you know, it was really the concert stuff that they first showed on MTV that was so awesome. I mean, there was there was the music videos, but they weren't they weren't really people playing, you know. Sometimes they were, but it was the other stuff they showed of the live stuff that was that was so cool. Um, and then they came out with, you know, instructional VHS tapes, you know, when I was in my 20s, you know. So I when I you know got back from college. And all of a sudden, you know, Starlix had, you know, videos and I could get a, uh, you know, who's this? You know, I could get um, Albert Lee at a video, Robin Ford at a video, you know, all of a sudden you, you started to get uh, some, some video instructional content, but even then it wasn't transcribed. There wasn't like a buffet. I mean, like in this day and age, you can literally get uh, transcriptions, like off the record transcriptions of like everything you could possibly imagine, you know? That was not the way when we were, I mean, I remember going in when I was in eighth grade to a music store, ninth grade, and wanting a, a Hendrix songbook because I wanted to learn those tunes so bad. And you would get this cool book with cool pictures, and but it would basically just be lead sheet. So it would be the lyric and the melody, and then just like some cowboy chords above that you knew he never played ever. You know, they were not the arrangements of the song. So yeah, there was no access to any of that stuff. So it was very much a verbal, you know, an oral tradition to try to figure out the stuff. And now it's just, you know, it's everywhere. I mean, all you got to do, I mean, you still got to, the thing is you still got to be able to play it with the right intention. You know, there's a lot of people that can move their hands. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, oh yeah, and, definitely. And, that, and that's still great. Don't get me wrong. It takes, it takes effort to be able to play something in time and with great technique. So you don't want to take any way, anything away from people that do that. But uh, in terms of playing it with, uh, you know, emotion and creativity and all that kind of stuff, that's still something uh, that is a unique experience that's cultivated through uh, uh, kind of a personal vision. But 
That being said, it's aided tremendously by the access of all of this information that you don't have to actually waste time uh, with the, the the transcribing of all of this different stuff. And then to just be able to, I mean, and, and then there's every musician, you know, on earth that does videos almost like every other day on Instagram. You know what I mean? If I could have back in the day, if I, I was really into, you know, Danny Gatton or, you know, um, any of my favorite blues guys, all of a sudden, Hey, I follow him on Instagram. And every day he just kind of gets out his guitar and plays and be like, what? I can actually see these people and hear these people do this stuff and get a little bit into the side of their head of how they think or their humor and how they are. I mean, back then you, it's like, you know, like you, you'd meet people that knew one of these guys like, well, what's he like? You know what I mean? And now it's like, well, just go online. <laughs> well, mystery now for musicians is kind of a, a dead thing. And of course I do a podcast. There are hundreds of hours of me talking online. And there's no option for me to be mysterious. Like, if you want to know anything that I think about anything, all you have to do is look at my Instagram page or <laughs> listen to the podcast. Right, right, right. So times have really changed because I, I was like right on that borderline generation. Like, um, I got into music probably when I was in the seventh or eighth grade. So that would have been 2004, 2005. And the iTunes thing was just starting to happen. And starting to mm -hmm. become popular like they were doing this promotion at the time with pepsi where if you got a bottle of pepsi you would get one free song down oh yeah 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 yeah. so um i had already been starting to go to like i my hometown had a great record store called bull moose i grew up in maine it's it's like a legendary record store in northern new england and um so I was kind of like feeding these two sides of myself where I was super into the digital thing because I had access to everything that you could imagine. And then the record store in my hometown was phenomenal because uh, they had some kind of software that they designed called Fieldstack. And basically what it was is they looked at the buying habits of their customers and um, made suggestions from like the warehouse for buys. So they would like if you bought, I don't know, if you bought like a cream record, it might recommend maybe you would be into Hendrix or something like that, gotcha. like a Hendrix rarities collection. And they would have these stands at the front of the store at the end of every aisle to where you could go up. And it's like if you like dot, 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 you might like this. And it was that way for movies. It's how I discovered Quentin Tarantino and all of his soundtracks and all of that. Right. And it's something that's becoming kind of like a dead art going to the record store. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I used to love to, when I was out at Wildwood, I'd go down the street to the, the vinyl store and get a bunch of vinyl. And, and uh, it's a whole different experience. I mean, that's, you know, again, you don't want to sound too much like, uh, you know, back in my day, but there is definitely a different experience with, um, how the music's programmed, you know, in terms of you can only listen to four, five, maybe six tunes max on a side. And then you got to, you know, you got to commit and then you got to go over the other side and, and listen to them. And there's the pacing involved and all that kind of stuff. And just the way that it sounds and just the, the experience of, of that whole thing and the artwork and, you know, having this substantive thing that you're holding on to. And, uh, you know, music just had a different value back then. And uh, nowadays, it's just, again, you have access to all this stuff, and you can still go on the journey. And, and it's so cool that you can have access to all this stuff. 
but the the gravity of it uh, is not the same. No, it's not. But I will say this as a counter argument for that. What you're really into, though, is what you're into, and you can completely support what it is that you love. True. Like now with uh, with Spotify and all that, the one thing I kind of like about it is if I'm into a certain genre or whatever, and I listen to an album on there, once that album ends, it goes into similar artists of a similar genre. Yeah, which is very cool. No doubt. And I've discovered a lot of music that way too. Um, with that being said though, I think like really the future of what's going to happen is uh, music is going to keep going down and it's already kind of here like this patronage kind of format. Right. Where it's like people, this is the artist that you really love and you want to donate $20 to like their Patreon or whatever it is. Right. Like this is for me. This is what I love. This is the thing that I'm into. Right. Which just didn't exist before. Cause it's like, before I'm anything, I'm a music fan first and foremost. Right. And as someone again, who had both, both experiences of the record store and like going and being able to download songs off of iTunes and LimeWire when that was a thing, when I was too poor to be able to afford it because I was a kid. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's a beautiful thing and it's not going to stop. It's just going to keep growing. And there are these great places like Bandcamp that are really right. super supportive of the artists. Right. I agree. Yep. That, 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 totally. I mean, I always say, you know, and people are always like, you need endless growth or, you know, these, these, you know, you need millions of hits. It's like, no, you don't. You all, you, I don't, you don't need a million. You just need enough. You got 5,000 people that support what you do. You're good. You know what I mean? Any more than that? Great. You know, but uh, you know what I'm talking about? You, you don't really need to um, the old mechanisms and the old paradigm of, well, we got to do this and this and this, and we got to reach these amount of people. I mean, yeah, the more people you reach, the better. But by the same token, if you have a way to have the people that love what you do uh, and, and, and be a way to get to those people and tell them, hey, I got this new thing out and yada, 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 uh, whether it be you know, Patreon or any number of different ways of, of, uh, of having them contact you and, and uh, support you. But yeah, it's fantastic that way, especially. I think that is, uh, I mean, certainly, I mean, I always tell folks, you know, you're in the golden age of the record business, I didn't make squat. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. So now, I mean, I, you know, I can't complain. I mean, I, you know, everything, you know, I, I, um, I can make great sounding records for not a ton of money. And, uh, you know, before it's even out, I do a pre sale, it's paid for, you know, and, um, you know, and of course, after that initial thing, it kind of run a course, but you know, people keep buying it. And when you do shows, they're buying it. And when I do the live streams, they continue to support and so on and so forth. Um, but you know, the kind of the whole parent, the old paradigm of having a label and, you know, paying publicists and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, it, I mean, it still works for some people, but you know, I just did a recent thing in that scenario and it just, the only reason why I did it was because I thought I would be helped with some of the logistics of touring, having a, Hammond organ player in the band. We got a bunch of stuff in Europe and um, there was some talk about us being on some bills with some bigger artists and going to some of these bigger festivals and absolutely none of those things happened. Yeah, I ended up, I ended up doing all of the stuff that needed to be done. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never, you know, because you know, it, you always hope uh, as an artist that someone is going to come along 
and open up the doors that have always been closed to you and help you do X, Y, and Z. And sometimes that happens to one extent or another. Uh, but the but most of the time, you've got to do everything yourself because no one cares more about your music than you do. And, um, and you know, there's superficial aspects of the music industry that will never change. I mean, I was at lunch with a bunch of curmudgeonly musician types today and that were that all have me by about 10 or 15 years but have you know spent their whole lives as musicians in one way shape or form or another and you know they were starting to well people only really listen to you know they call them civilians you know civilians only really listen to music uh with their eyes and i said i think they listen with their groins <laughs> but you know when we're talking about you know the mass quantity of people and how they react to stuff I mean, it, it's, it's true. Think, something just has to be good enough. And then it's all about the packaging and the marketing and the relationship between the artist, their management, and whoever else that is conducive enough for everyone getting their bread buttered in such a way that someone can be lifted up. Now, granted, you know, you can't polish a turd. It's got to it's gotta have legs to it in order to, to become a meteoric thing or whatever meteoric is in this day and age. But uh, it all starts off with there's a very superficial aspect of it that that is visually oriented or is is so such low hanging fruit that there's almost no I mean, you, you don't see many like homely looking, you know, nerdy dudes or gals coming out there that aren't like visually totally appealing yes. that, that pl have played in the garage and mastered their craft and are now a great band. It happens in some way, shape or form, but, but usually not until it's been massaged in such a way uh, that it is, it has become low hanging fruit to the, to the extent that it, the doors get opened. You know what I mean? Are you saying that meatloaf would not be uh, a top, a top 10 performer today if, if you were to come out? Probably not. Yeah, no. And it's, it's the sad truth. Cause uh, I, I saw this funny meme on Facebook recently that said, uh, let ugly people make music again. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. it's so funny. I looked, I listened, you know, I mean, look at Dire Straits. I mean, I mean, I love Mark Knopfler and those guys, but you know, it's not like, I mean, it's not like they were poster, you know, pinup folks, you know, but look at the stones. I mean, yeah. they had, they had a thing, but you know, it was an era where it was just more about who they were and how they conducted themselves and the, and the vibe they put off as well as the fact that they could rock, you know? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different world, but, but then again, to all the other stuff that we said, there's no better time for being able to kind of carve out your niche and do everything yourself and make a living making music. So, you know, no better time to be ugly. Exactly. No better time <laughs> to be a, a homely individual. So what, uh, what else do you have going on these days? Is there anything, uh, other projects that you're working that you have on the horizon right now? Well, there's a bunch of different stuff. Um, you know, my main uh, ensemble that I play with is uh, the Cock Marshall Trio, which is my son on drums and uh, a fabulous organ player from Minneapolis named Toby Marshall. He's a super freak. And he plays bass with his left hand, a little bit with his feet, and then is a great, he comps great, and he solos great. Uh, and that's my main group that we've been touring with, recording with, and so on and so forth. So we put out a record earlier this year, and we have another one that's just about done. So we'll probably put that record out uh, around just before Christmas time. I got to get on that, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, anyway, but we'll do it ourselves because, you know, we've got the, as we described, I have all the, 
uh, ability to get the thing out and get the word out myself to the people that will care. Uh, but I also started doing all this new video content, like we talked about earlier, be going down to Florida last week, I did a, uh, uh, this relationship with True Fire. So the Grisselman Guitar Masterclass is coming out on October 27th. But you can pre-sell it, you can get the pre-sales now actually through my website, which is just gregcock.com. Uh, we've also gone back and, uh, you know, I hired a guy who's our, actually our booking agent. He also does management and all kinds of stuff. But uh, I had him because we had, really had a problem over the years. I've released all these records under different names. You know, first, my first band was Craig, Greg Cock and the Tone Control. So I got five, you know, four or five records under that name uh, that I did, you know, Greg Cock Trio. There's Greg Cock and other bad men, Greg Cock Band, you know, Cock Marshall Trio. There's all these entities having no idea that on down the line, Spotify, you know, you want to get as many followers and listeners every month because booking agents and people that, you know, want to know how much you're drawing or, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's very important that you are all in one place. Well, all of a sudden you're in five different places now and they all have their different, you know, so you want them all under one roof. So we had to yank all the old records off. We had to redo the artwork. So we just say, Greg, <laughs> And so it's all in So we got all of that done. So 15 of my releases are now available on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else, Deezer, Weezer, whatever the, you know, all the different places. Um, and then, you know, the Cock Marshall Trio will probably end up redoing as Greg Cock and then KMT just because it's amazing. I will say this, and again, not to... I understand it, but what's so bizarre to me in this particular point in time is that even though, you know, this little thing right here, I always say, if only there was a way, because people ask questions online, like, do you have your own band? I'm like, how would you find something like that out? You know what I mean? Would there yeah. be a website? Would there be a website? You know what I mean? Where do I get your record? What's the name of your band? Uh, da, da, da. It, it's so people, it, unless you drive them to one place, and, and the message is so crystal clear. It, it, it's amazing how many people you miss. So um, <laughs> we'll probably end up recording or releasing the next record under like Greg Hawk. And then you know, we've been just abbreviating the band, the KMT, just so people understand that that's what it is. But in terms of people being able to find it, you know, I'll have to put my name on there just, you know, it's, and it's not an ego trip. It's just the fact no. that I've, I've tried over the years to be as, oh, well, I'll put the, this band together with these people. It'll be a separate entity. And people are like, no, you've you've all these years, you know, you've been trying to have these two words, Greg Cock, be known. And people are not going to know this other thing, no matter how good it is, no matter what the tunes are, no matter how great the band is and different from your other stuff, unless people have an easy pathway to find it, man, you're doomed. You So you have to just hang your hat on whatever you got that actually is working, <laughs> right? So that's another thing we've been doing. Um, and then I do four or five live streams a week. Uh, that's been a lot of fun. I've been doing a column in Guitar World magazine, but it's more of a, uh, Andy Alador writes everything out for me. I do these videos for them. And the video is on uh, online and on YouTube. And then he writes the stuff down and puts the examples in the magazine. So that's been, that's been fun as well. Uh, so that's that, you know, other than that, I had all four kids home for COVID and uh, they were here for a good, you know, year and a half. And now they're finally all kind of, they're going out. My, my uh, youngest is a senior in high school. So uh, he's home here, but the rest have flown the coop, except for my son who still comes, he lives in town and he comes over to, 
do our live streams. We do two with him a week and then, you know, uh, a on third Instagram. One. Uh, those are on Facebook uh, and uh, my YouTube channel. My YouTube channel is Greg Cock Music. And um, it's kind of weird. You know, my, I've been gradually, my, my, all the, the big videos of my stuff on YouTube are all on uh, somebody else's channel. You know, I, all Wildwood is like, you know, I don't know how many tens of, it's like over 50 million views of those videos on that channel. All the band stuff is on different channels. So I've been a little late to the game on my, uh, on my YouTube channel, but you know, tw- you know, as I said, four times a week, just those live streams go out on, um, on my YouTube channel, as well as Facebook. And uh, they're fun because they're just random. We literally just do whatever comes to mind. The Wildwood ones are a little formatted because it's, it's just me, but they'll send me guitars. So I'll talk about the guitar that we have and just play whatever that instrument kind of beckons me to do. And, um, but also, you know, there's, when Dylan and I are doing it, there's lots of random tunes that we do. I make up a lot of tunes on the spot and sometimes I'll sing some crazy stuff. And uh, so those are a lot of fun. Um, and that just keeps on going. People keep tuning in and they dig it. And the companies still are, you know, Wildwoods, you know, we, we keep on coming up with new ways to, to work from afar until, you know, Steve's being very cautious as well. He should be about, you know, having people go out there, especially because he's got guys that have young kids that work for him. And, you know, you just want to wait until everything is calm to the point of view where you don't have to, you know, be worried about people Some getting sick. Normalcy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then I'll start going out there again. But for now, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm staying home. I just canceled this Europe tour with the band because of too much uncertainty, you know, and uh, you don't want to be stuck overseas someplace and somebody in the entourage gets sick and then, okay, you got to be in a hotel room for two weeks until you can fly home. Really? Well, who's going to pay for that? What, 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 you know, so I just, you know, and everyone was understanding this one guy in Poland was like, why now? <laughs> like, have you been watching the news? I don't know if you're aware. <laughs> yeah, but the numbers right now are good. I go, yeah, but it's two months away. How am I supposed to know what it's going to be? You know, I'm going to yeah. put a good. So yeah, it's, it's just one of those things. I got one more question for you. <laughs> yes, sir. What is the best Halloween costume you've ever had? You know, this is a weird one, but it was my main costume when I was a kid. I probably wore it five years in a row, maybe more. When I was a young and it was Frankenstein in space. Don't ask me why. I don't know what the hell was going on there, but it was just one of those costumes you'd get at the normal where you kind of tied it and back and it had some, but it was like a space suit and it was Frankenstein's face in a space helmet with like a kazoo. And you're like, it was like Frankenstein in space. Loved it. Like five years strong. Was it a mask or did you have to paint it on? No, it was a mask. It was like, I, I don't know. There wasn't like a cartoon or a movie at that time of like somehow Frankenstein being foisted into a, a space station or something. It was just kind of this completely random thing. But by God, I was Frankenstein astronaut for about five years. <laughs> well, hey, man, thank you so much for doing this today. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to see you again. It's been yeah. a while.